Good morning, Providence. It's good to be back with you again. My name is Tim McCown, your missionary to Japan. And I have my, uh, my family with me. I want to introduce them to you uh, real quick. If you all could stand up. Uh, my daughter, Phoebe, my wife, Janelle, and Elisha and Isaac. And um, our oldest son, Simon, is uh, in college now. That's, not, that's why he's not with us this morning. But uh, again, we are your missionaries to Japan. Thank you all for praying for us, for supporting our ministry faithfully since we uh, were last with you, which was uh, back in 2014. So it's been quite some time since we've been with you. We wanted to give you an update this morning before we get into God's Word, just to show you what the Lord has done in Japan, so that way you can praise uh, Him with us. Um, can you advance the next slide, please? This is us when we were last with you, so it's been quite some time. Again, uh, thank you for, uh, for your faithfulness and in supporting our ministry. We couldn't serve the Lord in Japan if it weren't for your faithful support and your prayers. Next slide. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Japan, um, let's uh, just give a brief explanation about where we are talking about in the world. Next slide. If you go west to California and you continue to go west across the Pacific Ocean, eventually you will hit Hawaii. And if you keep going, eventually you'll hit the island nation of Japan. Japan is made up of four main islands that you can see here. We live on the largest of the four main islands, and there are 20,000 little islands as well, all together make up the archipelago nation of Japan. Next slide. Uh, we are a volcanic nation. We can see volcanoes from our house. This is Hakone, which is uh, about two hours away from our house. You can see that there's steam vents, uh, there's sulfur and uh, gases rising up. Out of, uh, out of the ground. Next slide. But our, uh, our main uh, volcano that most of you have probably heard of is Mount Fuji, which we can see from, from our home. Uh, next slide. Next slide. I'm not sure if you can see it on, on these projectors or not, but it is there, I promise you, um, in the background. It's, it's a little bit hard to see and washed out. Uh, next slide. We live in, uh, in the metropolitan area of Tokyo, which is the capital city of Japan. Uh, next slide. In Tokyo, we have 38 million people. Um, I'm told that it is the largest city in the world today. Uh, if you go to, Japan, to Tokyo and go up one of the many skyscraper observatories that we have, as far as you can look in every direction, it is a dense city like this all the way to the horizon. Next slide. The Japanese people are what are referred to as an unreached people group. Now, that does not mean that there are not missionaries there. There are missionaries there. What it means is that the amount of Christians is an extreme minority of the population. So, in Japan, less than half of 1% of the population is Christian. And so, what this results in is most Japanese people are born and live their entire lives and die without personally knowing someone that can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Next slide. People ask, what do the Japanese people practice for their religion? They practice something called Shinto Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism came over to Japan in the 5th century and intermixed with their native religion of Shintoism. Shintoism, they, uh, they basically pray to uh, spirits that they think live in um, uh, trees and mountains and the sun and natural things like that. Next slide. Every, uh, every city and neighborhood has its own uh, idols and stories that are associated with those idols, and the people go and, and ask blessing from these idols. Next slide. Here in the West, in, in America, when we talk about idolatry, usually we're talking about idols at the heart, things that we prioritize and uh, above God, but in, in Japan, uh, they very much uh, still carve wood and stone um, idols. Next slide. So, we've seen some of the beauty of Japan, some of the uh, big cities of Japan, but ultimately those things are not why we're there. We're there because the Japanese people need to hear about Jesus Christ. Um, they need to know that there is a God that has created them. They are morally accountable to Him. They, uh, they know what is right and what is wrong. 
Uh, God has uh, given them a conscience, and their conscience partially agrees with the, uh, His moral law in the Bible, and, um, and they, have, they have disobeyed what they know to be right, and in doing so have condemned themselves, and uh, they are separated from, from God's uh, presence because of their rebellion against Him. Uh, but the good news is that God became uh, a human. He added humanity to Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and lived among us, lived perfectly obedient to God's old covenant law, even unto His death on the cross to atone for our sins. And He has risen from death. He has conquered death victorious. Today He is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. They must repent and have faith in Him as their Lord and their Savior. This is the good news that we go to bring to the Japanese people, and we thank you for your partnership in uh, allowing, uh, enabling us to do this in, among the Japanese people. Next slide. We moved to uh, Sakaroshi, which is about 50 minutes from down, the closest downtown uh, Tokyo area. And uh, we moved there in 2017. This is our neighborhood here. Um, it looks pretty urban from our American eyes, uh, but if you ask a Japanese person about where we live, they will say it's the countryside. And they say that because we have farmland. Next slide. On the uh, outskirts of our city, you can see here they're growing rice on both sides of this farm road. Uh, next slide. But where we live, we live in the urban center of our city. We have about 120,000 people between our city and the uh, directly neighboring city. We live on the line between the two cities. Uh, we do have this train station, and basically uh, it is the way that we get around in Japan. This is a block away from us. There is a train every five to ten minutes going to and from Tokyo. So uh, to access our place of worship and where we live, it is very easy for people from Tokyo and all the cities on the way to our place from Tokyo if they wanted to come and, uh, and worship the Lord with us. Next slide. This is our neighborhood. Um, we are in the second house on the right, the yellow house. You can see we do have snow on the ground. We do see all four seasons where we live. Next slide. We praise the Lord that uh, this house was arranged for us. We were able to move into it sl uh, smoothly, and uh, there's about 1,000 square feet of, uh, of space that we use to live and to worship the Lord together in this house. Next slide. When we first moved to Japan, we knew a little bit of Japanese, but not enough to study the Bible and preach coherently. And so, um, we went to a full-time language school, both my wife and I, for 40 hours a week for three years, and that got us up to an intermediate level of being able to speak, read, and write Japanese. Uh, one of the great things about joining a foreign language school is there's basically a bunch of people in the same situation as we were. Um, they had moved to Japan from other nations, most of them from East Asia, and we were able to uh, share the gospel with some of these people that we would not have otherwise been able to have the opportunity to do that. There are people in this uh, group that you cannot send missionaries today into their countries uh, because of uh, violence against missionaries, places like Bangladesh, uh, which is uh, the bank. Uh, the, they're another unreached people group, for example, and there's other East Asian countries that were part of our class as well. So, we praise the Lord that we were able to, uh, to have an outreach into, into this group of people. Next slide. Our children needed to learn Japanese as well, and so we put them into the uh, Japanese school system. You can see Elisha here is the only kid with blonde hair in his class. And um, we were able to build relationships with uh, many of the parents of these students, and uh, this is one of the ways that the Lord enabled us to build inroads into our community. Next slide. Another way that we outreach into our community is by um, teaching English as a uh, foreign language. We don't do this because uh, it's not like we think we, that they need to know English in order to learn the Bible or anything like that, but Japanese people in general, uh, they know a little bit of English and want to continue to grow that skill set, and so uh, we open our home every Wednesday and uh, teach English to our community, and it enables us to uh, to build relationships with people and build a long-term audience to be able to teach the Bible to them. Next slide. 
Another way we reach into our community is by opening our home for American holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving. These are holidays that are not celebrated in Japan, but Japanese people are curious about them. And so here we're writing uh, our list of things that we're thankful for for the year, and then they get to see us pray to the Christian uh, God, which is uh, something that they wouldn't normally get to see. So it's a good opportunity for us to build relationships and introduce a little bit of Christianity to them. Next slide. Next slide. Ultimately, that we are there to um, not just to build relationships, but ultimately to share the gospel with people. And um, so, one of the uh, the ways that we we do that is by um, uh, when we have a, a, a stable, long-term relationship, when we've gauged that we have the trust of the individual and that they know that we're not out to take advantage of them, we study the Bible with them and, and teach them about. Uh, about God and about sin and uh, about what Jesus has done and their need to repent and have faith. And that takes about 11 Bible study sessions uh, that are about 40 minutes long. So, it, it does take a, a bit of time to, uh, to do that to get a Japanese person to the point where they can coherently explain the gospel back to you. We praise the Lord that we've seen several people uh, go through that and have been able to explain the gospel back to us. Um, one of our… Uh, th- this is my Japanese language school teacher. His name is Nakamura-sensei. And uh, one of the other ways that we share gospels uh, with people, the gospel with people, is just talking about Christ in our everyday uh, flow of life. And um, Nakamura-sensei likes to uh, go mountain climbing. And so, here we are going up a mountain together, and it takes several hours of time. And so, was able to share uh, just talk through the story of, of the Bible with him and explain what Christ has done. And he had nowhere to go and hide because uh, we both need each other for these several hours. And um, next slide. This is my friend Purna. Purna is from Sri Lanka. And it's kind of the same story with him. Uh, we're going on a hike here and um, talking about the Lord. And um, Purna told me when we were done with our conversation, he said, uh, you know, Tim, we have… Christian churches in Sri Lanka, and I've been to some of them, but no one has ever taken the time to explain to me what the story of Christianity is, what the Bible is about. So, we praise the Lord for opportunities like this. We're able to share Christ with people just in the normal ebb and flow of life. Next slide. Uh, We are… Janelle is teaching um, women and children from our community in this photo. Uh, this is Christmas time, and so we're explaining the story of Christmas in, in Japanese and in English to, uh, to people in our community. Next slide. And this is the same, uh, the same thing with a, uh, a Chinese man from our community. Next slide. After uh, teaching the Bible for several months to individuals, um, certain people started making a profession of faith in Christ, and so we praise the Lord for um, His work, His sovereign work of grace in their hearts. And, uh, but these people had no place where they could meet to gather uh, on Sunday mornings to hear, um, hear preaching and worship the Lord with us and hear the gospel on a regular basis. And so we opened our home to them and uh, started having Sunday morning meetings. You can see we have a sign here in our window explaining that we're having a worship service. So, this is the front of our house. We meet right behind those, those windows there. Next slide. Uh, this is uh, in, inside that room where we worship the Lord together. This is one of our first, uh, our first groups of people that, that met with us during that time. This would, be, um, this would be 2019 in the summer. Next slide. As I said, people started making professions of faith in Christ and needed to be baptized, and uh, I gave them the option, you can be baptized in my bathtub or in the ocean where we have jellyfish every, all, all the time except for one month of the year, which was not this month, or you can be baptized in the river where we have vipers. And they decided to, everyone decided to go with the river option. Um, I don't know why no one picked my bathtub, but that's okay. And we, uh, so we got down to the river, and um, there wasn't enough water to baptize people. We are Baptists. We don't just sprinkle people. We immerse them. And so we, um, we brought a shovel down to the river and dug a hole in the bottom of the river and made it deep enough to where we could baptize people. And uh, next slide. We praise the Lord. We had three baptisms that day. Next slide. Next slide. And no one got bit by vipers, so that's a plus too. 
Next slide. We covenanted together uh, shortly after as Christ Baptist Church. We chose that name because we want Jesus to be the, the, uh, the subject and object of our worship. We want Him to be glorified in everything that is done and said. Uh, we want uh, His name to be, to be glorified in our area. Next slide. So, what a typical Sunday morning service looks like. Uh, we have three rows of seating. You can't see the back row because of the camera angle, uh, but it is there. And uh, you can see I'm up front with a, another man. He is a Japanese Filipino man, so he knows three languages. He knows Japanese, Tagalog, and English. And uh, he serves by, um, by doing some of the, uh, the readings during our, our Sunday morning service. I can read Japanese, but this is just the way that he serves. So we praise the Lord for him. He's our seminary student, and uh, we look forward to what the Lord is going to do in his life. Next slide. Um, some prayer requests that we have that our area is, uh, our neighborhood is growing. Um, you can see in, in the background here, they're, they're building an apartment skyscraper. And so right now we have about 3,000 people that live within a block of us, and that, I think that's about to double to 6,000 people. We have a million people within half an hour, and of course, the whole Tokyo metro is 38 million people within an hour and a half of us, so we're in a pretty populated area. So please pray that we're able to have um, continued uh, in-reach, outreach into our community. Next slide. Also pray for the people that we have taught the gospel to. They are able to explain the gospel coherently back to us, but they have yet to believe. Pray that the Lord would overcome their unbelief and that He would save them. Um, next slide. Also pray for the discipleship of our church uh, in Japan. They, they can, well, it's the Lord's church in Japan, but you know what I mean. They, uh, they continue to meet on Sunday mornings in, in our home. In, even though we're not physically there, and we connect into them with uh, streaming technology. We praise the Lord for t that technology, but it does introduce some challenges to the way that we do our church services. Um, pray that the Lord continues to grow and shape them into the image of Christ, even though we're not physically present there. Um, we've been in the States for four months now on, our, on this furlough, and uh, we plan on going back to Japan in early November. Next slide. Pray that, uh, that the Lord would continue to send uh, like-minded missionaries to Japan. Um, many missionaries went to Japan after World War II when the country opened up to, uh, to mission work again, and um, many missionaries did go over there, but most of them have retired or passed away at this point, uh, and not a lot of new missionaries are going to Japan because it's an expensive place to live and do ministry, and they're known for being historically a resistant people to Christianity. That's why they're still an unreached people group. Uh, so pray that the Lord would continue to send laborers into His harvest fields. Next slide. Also, pray for, uh, pray for our area. Pray that many more Baptist churches would be established in our area. Like I said, we have 120,000 people in our area, and my family and our church congregation has, you know, a, a limited outreach ability in our area, and there's so much more work to be done. And uh, so, Please pray that many more churches would be established in our area. Next slide. Um, also pray that the Lord would… Uh, uh, pray that we would be able to raise more support for our ministry. I know that um, the economy here in America has been hurt by inflation, and uh, that is the case in, uh, in other countries as well, like Japan. Our, the cost of living in Japan right now is 135% of what it is here in the United States, and so we're looking for churches to adjust their giving for uh, inflation and also for more churches to partner uh, with our, our ministry. Uh, so please pray and consider that, uh, pray about and consider that. Next slide. Some things that we're raising funds for, we need to do a furniture remodel in our worship space. Um, we have three sofas in there right now. You might ask, well, why do you, why do, you do sofas? Why don't you have chairs or pews or something? And uh, the reason is this, this space doubles as not only a worship space, but also as a hospitality space. 
So we've had people that come from America to do short-term mission work in Japan, and they need a place where they can stay because a hotel is just too expensive. And so these sofas fold down in, into beds that can be used as a mission apartment area. Uh, but they've, uh, they've, they're worn out at this point and need to be replaced. So that's going to uh, cost us some money. And also we are raising funds for a missionary, uh, a ministry vehicle. Um, so that way we can serve our community better and we can transport people more, more easily. Next slide. All right, and lastly, thank you. Uh, thank you all again for your support and for your prayers. Uh, it's really encouraging to come and see our prayer letter in your bulletin and know that someone out there actually reads it and prays for us. Uh, we appreciate you um, doing that, taking our, our requests before the throne of grace. At this time, let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We will be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. Book of Isaiah is a very interesting book. Um, it's weaving back and forth between these visions of coming judgment and these visions of coming redemption. It's written to the people of Judah before they were exiled, uh, before they were taken as captives, as exiles. If you, if you remember, um, in the Old Covenant law, when it was given, there were commands regarding um, you, you, you can't worship idols, you can't worship other gods, you cannot have any other gods before me. And the, um, the old covenant law came with blessings if the people obeyed the law, and it came with cursings if the people disobeyed the law. And the people had been living in unrepentant idolatry for quite some time at this point, and the people, um, they were going to be they were going to be taken into exile as a judgment. That was one of the, uh, the judgment curses that were given under the old covenant law. So a lot of uh, Isaiah is him, uh, the prophet, denouncing the people's sins and telling them, you are going to go into judgment. It is sure that you are going to go into judgment. But also there are these glimmers of hope. that There's going to be redemption for a remnant of the people. The central question that arises as you're reading is, well, if, if, um, if, if they're enslaved in their idolatry, if they, are, if they are a rebellious people that are going to go into judgment, then how can they possibly become this, uh, this remnant that is going to experience uh, redemption? So Isaiah, in chapter 6, he has this vision where God calls him to proclaim his word to the nations, and ultimately what this vision does is it serves as a, a model for how uh, people that are rebelling against God's law can be reconciled with God and be given a mission to where they can proclaim God's word and God's glories to the uh, the nations and the people around them. And so there are some insights that we'll we'll see here in the text uh, that should influence how we as Christians also view our own calling to proclaim God's glory to the nations. Let's go ahead and start reading. We'll start reading in verse one of Isaiah six. In the year the king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I want us to see here that because God is holy, He deserves to be worshipped by all of the creation. 
Verse 1 sets the historical context for us. It says it's in the year that King Uzziah died. So for those of you that are interested in history, this is about 740 B.C. And during this time frame, uh, before his death, what had happened historically is that the nations around them had risen in military strength, namely Assyria had risen in military power. And King Uzziah was a strong military leader. He had basically kept Assyria at, at bay. He had kept them from invading because of his military might. But there was a problem. King Uzziah um, performed priestly duties against the old covenant law. He was not allowed to do that, and when he did that, the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he died. And that created a national emergency for the people, because now their strong military leader was dead. What possibly could keep the Assyrians from invading now. And in this vision, we see that God was still on the throne. Even though their national leader had died, God was still king. He was still sovereign, ruling from His heavenly throne room, displaying His authority and majesty, even though there was this national emergency. And above him, we see the seraphim, sinless, everlasting, angelic creatures created to serve God. And they are, they are uh, in the New Testament, they are referred to by the apostles as the holy angels, so there is a sense of awe and wonder about them. They, they are righteous, they, they do not sin, and um, even though these creatures are amazing in their own right, um, what we see them doing, we see they're using their wings, two of them for flying, the other four, they are covering themselves. They're covering their face. They're covering their feet. Why do they do this? It's because in God's presence, in His sacred, holy presence, they are, even though they are awesome creatures, they are brought low in God's presence. They hide their bottom half. This is a, a symbol of shame, of lowness, humility. They're hiding from Him. They cannot bear to look on His glories. They call out, holy, holy, holy. This emphasizes that God's holiness is unparalleled. In all the universe, there is there's no one that is holy like God is holy. And this, the holiness of God can't even be contained. It's so infinite that it floods out of heaven to the earth as well. The whole earth is full of His glory, the text says. So, what is God's holiness here? Often in American English, when we talk about holiness, we think purity, we think righteousness. But how does Isaiah use the term holy? In Isaiah 40, uh, verse 25, he uses holy uh, to talk about God again, and he's talking about that God is distinct from the creation. God is the creator. He is the king. He is the sovereign. There's no one like God. You can look at Everything else in the entire universe that has ever been created, you can look to the farthest reaches of the stars, you can, you can look everywhere under, under the, the closeness of the, of the microscope, you can look to any other idol, any other person, nothing in the whole universe compares with God. He alone is holy, holy, holy. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. His understanding is unattainable. His might is unending. And His worthiness to receive obedient worship extends from not only the seraphim in heaven, but also 
to all creatures worldwide who witness his works. Every man, woman, and child is responsible. It is their duty to worship their Creator and King. After all, His glory permeates the whole earth, the text says. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme as well in Romans 1 and 2. Everyone knows that there's a God. How do they know that there's a God? They know it by looking at the creation, looking at the things that have been created. They can know that God has eternal power and eternal nature, and yet they don't worship Him. Instead, they go and craft idols and worship them instead. They don't give thanks to God. God's sovereignty extends beyond creation in general, though. His kingship and rule and reign also extends to all armies. That's why he is aptly named the Lord of hosts. can also be translated Yahweh of armies. Now, this title is important in the historical context. Remember what had happened. Their king, their military leader had just died. What was going to keep the Assyrians from invading? Well, it is the Lord of armies. In chapter 36, the Assyrians, they come upon Jerusalem. They are mocking God. They are mocking His prophets. They're saying, we have steamrolled every other civilization that we have come upon. Their prophets said that they wouldn't be conquered by us. Where are they now? They're all dead. They've been conquered. What is going to make you, Jerusalem, any different? Your God is worthless. Your prophets are worthless and Yet God promised protection of Jerusalem, and the following day, the besieging Assyrian army, they were found slaughtered at the doorstep of Jerusalem, killed by the angel of the Lord, the text says in chapter 36 of Isaiah. And this demonstrated that it is God who is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of hosts. He has all authority. He has all sovereignty. It's not the armies or the nations or the other rulers of the the nations of the world that have sovereignty. God is sovereign, and military strength is incapable of hindering the plans of God. No one can thwart His plans. Now, in the course of history, Jesus… God the Son became human. He obeyed God's old covenant law, ultimately unto Him giving Himself as a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice on the cross to suffer the wrath of God for our sins. And after three days, He resurrected. In, in, his, in his teachings, in His miracles that He did, He demonstrated that He has all authority in heaven and on earth. In, in the Great Commission passage, that, that, that is the logical foundation for the Great Commission. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now, why am I bringing up Jesus? It's because in John 12, the author of the book of John, he says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. He said that in John 12, verse 41. Now, what was going on that he would, he would need to bring up Isaiah of, of all books? Well, in Jesus' ministry… Jesus proved His authority. He did. He did all these miracles before His people, proving that He had authority to, uh, to do and say the things that He was doing and saying. And yet, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Now, some of them, of course, did receive Him. To those that received Him, um, He gave them the right to become the sons of God, children of God. But when Jesus was rejected by His own, did Jesus' 
authority fail? Did God's mission fail? And the answer must be no. No. God is still in authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, even though he was rejected. Oh. Why refer to Isaiah then? Well, it's because in Isaiah, in this section of Isaiah, rejection of the Word of God is also part of the mission of God that was given to the prophet. And so, Jesus's being rejected by the people was, an, this points forward, uh, Isaiah points forward to Jesus being rejected by His people. And this gives us hope. How does, how does rejection give us hope? It gives you hope. It gives me hope that when we proclaim the Word of God to people, when we tell people about Christ and yet again they have rejected Christ, over and over and over they reject. Or if we go and do mission work among a people that are historically resistant to the gospel, it should never deter us from obeying Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. We should not fear rejection. We should not fear potential violence against us, but we should trust that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and we should willingly take Christ-exalting risks to bring glory to the name of Christ among the nations. It is what is right to do. Remember the seraphim. The seraphim, in their sinless perfection, they are humbly covering themselves in God's sacred presence. They are worshiping Him. They are declaring His holiness. Their response to God's holiness and their response to God's sovereign rule is the correct response. Remember, they are sinless. The things they do are righteous. And this serves as an example for how we all should respond to the holiness of God, specifically as it is seen in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the express image of God to humanity. When we look at Christ, we see God. When, when we look at what Jesus did, we see what God did. You want to see God's holiness? Look at Jesus. And people from every other nation should also worship God through Jesus because He's holy, because He is Lord. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. But there's a problem. Let's continue reading in verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I want us to see here that because God is holy, guilty sinners are in danger of judgment. So the angelic creatures, the seraphim, they are crying out God's holiness. And when that happens, the heavenly temple trembles. It shakes. Now, um, my family and I, we live in Japan, and the ground shakes in Japan. We have earthquakes uh, all the time. Every few months, we have a pretty bad earthquake. Uh, there have been times where I've woken up and it has been dark and the house is shaking and the early warning systems are going off outside and on my phone and it is terrifying and it feels like I am standing on a small boat rocking on a crazy ocean. I can't see anything, I just know my house is doing this. And in that moment, I am scared for my life and the life of my family because the house could come down on me. It is a threatening situation. In this text, 
These things that are happening, the temple trembling, the filling with smoke, probably, probably incense smoke, ultimately this signifies God's holy presence. That's what these are symbols of, but they are ominous symbols. And that's why the, the prophet says, woe is me, for I am undone. He realizes that he is in a dangerous situation. He is in danger of judgment. And why do I say that he's in danger of judgment? Well, it's because in the prior chapters, uh, Isaiah has spent a good amount of time proclaiming these woes or these judgment warnings against his own people uh, because they had they are worshiping other idols. Uh, they are worshiping other gods. They are worshiping idols alongside uh, idols that they have ascribed to, to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, which was in, you know, that was in violation of the old covenant law. And the people were continuing in it. They were not repenting. And so he proclaimed that God's judgment is coming. The people were like, "Well, we we have all these things that." that are in our society that we can seek safety in from God's judgment. And so, Isaiah proclaims woes uh, against all of those things in society that people were trusting in, basically saying there's no way that you can escape God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. It is sure. There is nothing you can possibly do to escape it. But when Isaiah was standing in God's presence in the heavenly temple, he realizes, oh no, it's not only my people that are in danger of judgment, I am in danger of judgment. Woe unto me. We would expect, you know, Isaiah, he's a prophet. We would expect he'd join in the holy, 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 right? (laughs) I mean, we sing that as Christians. We like that song, that hymn. But Isaiah doesn't join in. He recognizes he deserves judgment. Him and his people, they were morally corrupt. They had disregarded God's commandments. They had blasphemed his name. And his unclean lips are a reflection of the uncleanliness of his heart and his people's hearts. Centuries later, Jesus said similar things regarding the mouth. He said, it's not what goes into the person that defiles him. Rather, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. He said that in Matthew 15. This implies that sinfulness, it does not originate from outside. It does not originate from external factors such as environment or upbringing. Rather, there is something wrong with our nature. There's something wrong with us on the inside. You know, here in America, when we see people committing crimes, many, many times the, the common thing to say is, um, oh, he must have had a up, bad upbringing or been raised in a bad environment. The Bible doesn't go there. Jesus doesn't go there with people. Our sinfulness stems from our first ancestor, from Adam. Think about Adam's upbringing and environment. He had the perfect upbringing, the perfect environment. And yet he disobeyed God's law. He disobeyed God's command. The apostles treat Adam as a kind of representative for humanity, a perfect representative. If you or I were in the garden, of Eden, we would have done the exact same thing that Adam did. That makes us morally culpable, morally responsible for Adam's sin. But it doesn't only end there. Um, It's not only a problem with, you know, our first ancestor and our nature. It's also a problem of what we do. We know what's right, we know what's wrong, and we do what's wrong. Sin emerges from within us, making us guilty. And similar to the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Peter, when he recognized his own guilt, when he was standing before Jesus, he fell down at his knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And likewise, because we are sinners by birth and because we are sinners by choice, 
it would be foolish to assume that we can serve the Lord while remaining in our sinful condition. The prophet Isaiah recognized that due to God's holiness and the sinful nature of his people, judgment was coming. Judgment against his own person was coming. Now, in the text, it's interesting. He doesn't seek cleansing from God. That's not what happens in the text. It seems that he just accepted that judgment is forthcoming. And in the midst of recognizing that he deserved judgment is when this angel comes to him with the coal, takes away his sin. You know, Christianity, we often focus, I'm talking about wider Christianity, we often focus on God's love and, and that God wants, uh, that you can have a personal relationship with God. But if, and those things are true, um, God does love us. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not going to hell. Um, and God, we can have a personal relationship with God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those things are true. But if you limit your understanding of God to merely His love and merely the fact that you can have a personal relationship with Him, it can distort your understanding of who God is. God is not merely a supportive friend. He is not a grandfather, Santa Claus figure in the sky who wants to give you your every wish and desire. That is not who God is. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's infinitely holy. And we, that's, that's a problem for us because we are rebels against His moral law. We deserve His judgment. People say, well, I just want God to be fair. Do you understand what ha- would happen if God were fair? We would all be wiped off the face of the earth because we are rebels against a holy God, a God who is just and must judge sin. We have no right to God's love or favor because God is just. We deserve only judgment. We don't want that. We want His mercy. We want His grace. We have a desperate need for God to intervene and to save us, and that is the urgent necessity also of all humanity. Let's continue reading verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I want us to see that because God is gracious, he provides an atonement to restore sinners to worship him. How could guilty Isaiah be restored to purity? How could he proclaim the message of the holy God? He couldn't plead. He couldn't earn God's favor. He deserved exile. He deserved judgment, just like his people. And in that moment where he knew that judgment was sure, the seraphim flies to him, touches the coal to his mouth, declares his guilt taken away, and his sin purged. Now, this is what is this coal? I mean, personally, I think it was probably a coal from the sacrificial altar um, all, symbolizing substitutionary atonement for Isaiah's sins. Now, if you remember, the, the old covenant people, they, they had a system of uh, substitutionary sacrifice. They had the, the temple system where the Sins were placed on the animal. The, am- the animal was served as a, uh, a substitute sacrifice, and the animal was slaughtered. And therefore, the people wouldn't have to be slaughtered and suffer the wrath of God because the animal did. Well, ultimately, those weren't effectual sacrifices, right? Because they had to kept keep being done over and over and over. 
Ultimately, the uh, effectual sacrifice did come in the person and, uh, of Jesus Christ. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they point forward to Christ, the, um, who once and for all died as a sacrifice for sins. That is what prevents God from wiping us out. It is the good news that there is atonement through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He died to atone for our sins. What does that mean, atone? Basically, when Jesus went up the hill of Calvary, bearing the cross and was crucified, He became a sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. What that means is He bore our sins and God's wrath was poured out on Him in our stead. And the greatest transaction ever in the history of mankind happened on that cross. He took our sin, and those of us who have faith in Him receive His righteousness. It is transferred to us. It is imputed to us, as theologians say. It's not our righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. Righteousness that was proven, proven by His perfect obedience to the old covenant law, proven by the fact that he was tempted in the worst environment, in the desert, in the wilderness, by Satan himself. He was tempted like we are, and yet he knew no sin. He didn't sin. His righteousness is given to us. That is the best trade, the best deal, the best transaction ever. In the atonement, He turned away the wrath of God from us. And all we receive is blessing. We don't receive cursing. We receive blessing by God's grace through faith in Christ. This is the good news that Christianity offers to the world. But if you persist in unbelief, friend, if you persist in unrepentance, be warned. Be warned. Woe unto you, because judgment is coming. But there is reconciliation through faith in Jesus' atonement for all who believe. Let's continue reading. Verse 8, also I heard the vo- verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, who will go for us, that I send, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the people, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. I want us to see that because God is gracious, it motivates the proclamation of God's glory even unto the most resistant people. Remember, what what had just happened, Isaiah's sin was atoned for. The prophet was restored to the possibility of proclaiming God's word. But notice in the text, it, it didn't merely motivate Uh, it, It didn't merely restore him, it also motivated Isaiah. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. What was it that motivated 
him to preach the word of God to the historically unrepentant who had become like the, God, uh, the nations around them by worshiping other gods. It was the fact that his sins had been atoned for. How will resistant unbelievers nearby, how will resistant unbelievers far away among the unreached peoples of the world, how will they hear the good news of Jesus and repent and believe? It won't happen through promises of mass conversions, friends. In Japan, we have missionaries come and go. They come for a few years, they preach their hearts out, the people don't convert in mass numbers like they had hoped, and they leave discouraged and disillusioned. While we should hope for people to believe, I mean, that's what we want to see. We want to see disciples of Christ made. We want to see churches planted. We want to see many people come to Christ. Oftentimes, that doesn't happen. As Christians, we need a true and realistic motivation rooted in reality that can endure the resistance that we encounter when teaching God's Word to resistant people. Now, Isaiah... He had just received the gracious atonement from God. And that is what motivated him to preach God's word to this hard, resistant people. He wasn't compelled. He wasn't forced. He became a voluntary proclaimer out of his own desire, driven by what God had already done for him. Beloved fellow Christians, when Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations... Our obedience should not be compelled as if God is reaching down from heaven and twisting our arm behind our back and saying, go, make disciples. That is not, that, that should not be our motivation as if we are being forced to. It should be a joyful response to Christ's atoning work on our behalf. He died to atone for our sins. He reconciled us to himself. He rose from the dead to empower us to obey his commands. What glorious grace and mercy have we been shown by God through Jesus Christ. We should gladly give up that which would hold us back and partner together to take and preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to even the most resistant peoples of this world today. Now, we, um, we really like verse, um, verse 8, the whom shall I send and who will go for us, here I am, send me. That is like popular verse right there. But in the New Testament, it's interesting, that's not the verse that gets quoted. It's verses 9 and 10 that get quoted more often. The one's about resistance. Now, why is that? It's because the resistance that was faced by the apostles as they preached Christ crucified was reminiscent. It was an echo of this deafening and blinding and hardening effect that are described in the verses here in Isaiah. Despite the rejection the apostles encountered, they did not lose hope. They had experienced personally the transforming power of Jesus Christ, of God's grace in their own lives, and they continued to proclaim the gospel. They were confident that they were proclaiming the truth, that they were glorifying God, that they were offering salvation by preaching Christ, and that gives us hope as well as we evangelize the lost today. Many will resist, but there will be those, even among the most resistant, who by God's grace and through faith in Christ will join us in worshiping our great God for all eternity. But how long do we have to preach? How long do we need to tell the word of God to people even though they resist us? Well, in Isaiah's text, it was until judgment came. That's how long we also need to proclaim the word of God in Christ until judgment comes. When Jesus comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your grace and sovereignty amidst the rise and the fall of the nations of this world. We've been confronted once again with your holiness and our sinfulness. Father, in ourselves, we deserve judgment. We deserve to be cast away from your holy presence. But we thank you that Jesus bore your your wrath against our sins in our stead. We are thankful for that. We have joy because of that. Guide us to live lives that are motivated by Christ and what he did for us, lives that glorify you as you work through us to spread your gospel of Christ's redemption. Help us to reflect your character, your holy character in what we do. Help us to become more like Christ. We pray this for the sake of the name of Christ among the nations. Amen.